Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. You're listening to Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. A South Georgia jail used by Immigration and Customs Enforcement to hold detained immigrants is now almost empty in the wake of long-standing complaints against the facility. Last year, a nurse came forward with a complaint that documented abuses against female detainees, saying some were even forced to undergo hysterectomies at Irwin County Detention Center. The jail has also come under scrutiny from state health officials for failing to protect immigrants and staff from COVID-19. I begin to ask questions about why were the detainees not being tested symptomatic or asymptomatic. The Department of Homeland Security recently announced it would end its ICE contract with the private jail, but more details about its history of unsanitary conditions and alleged human rights abuses continue to emerge. For more, I'm joined by Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Jeremy Redman. Jeremy, let's start with a short history of the Irwin County Detention Center, which is in rural South Georgia. It was built in the 1990s by the county for the same reason that a lot of these places are built across rural America as a means to employ its citizens. And along the way, the Irwin County facility got into the immigrant detainee business. Can you help us understand that a bit better? This facility is built with county bonds, and it's changed hands several times since then. And they more than doubled it from 500 beds to around 1,200 beds. But it did not hold enough detainees, and the jail ended up not paying its taxes and accumulated about $1.6 million in back taxes owed to the county and the city. So at that point, it was around 2013, a company called CGL comes in, buys it at a bankruptcy auction, joins into a partnership with a company called LaSalle Corrections out of Louisiana. LaSalle, while it owns the jail, it leases it to the county. And the county receives money from LaSalle annually based on how many detainees are held there. So to break it down for you, uh, the county's got about a $5 million annual budget. This is a small county with about 10,000 people. And it collected around $400,000 based on the operation of this jail. And at one point, I understand it was holding hundreds of ICE detainees. And so the jail also has a $10 million payroll, employs about 200 people, and is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in the local economy. So now that ICE has moved its detainees out, it happened just recently, the county is scrambling to fill a major hole in its budget. So as the population of the place grew and as its capacity expanded, what were some of the concerns about the conditions there? Back just a year ago, in September of last year, A group of civil rights organizations, immigrant rights advocates, joined together and filed a complaint with the U.S. government, Department of Homeland Security, Office of Inspector General. Much of it is based on information from a whistleblower who worked inside the jail, a nurse named Don Wooten. There are a variety of complaints, but these are the two main ones. One is that the detention center was not doing it enough to protect the staff and detainees from COVID-19. 
And the second one is that female detainees were receiving improper medical care without them giving informed consent, including hysterectomies. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security Office of the Inspector General launched an investigation. So did Congress, and so did U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Life has reported a class action lawsuit against the facility now includes sworn testimony from at least 40 women. Explain to me more about the hysterectomies. What was the explanation by the authorities for that? ICE has said that maybe as many as two happened, but you know the people who filed this complaint looked into it more and have gathered records through the Federal Freedom of Information Act finding that there are actually more hysterectomies that were performed on these women, as well as other invasive procedures. So we don't have the results of the investigation from ICE at this point, nor has the Office of the Inspector General for DHS. And again, we're a year later after the whistleblower complaint. So were these procedures conducted at the facility? Presumably no, and they were done by an outside doctor. These are detainees were brought elsewhere. It was done allegedly without the consent of the detained women, correct? Well, here's the issue is that many of the women, English is not their native language. It's not their first language, right? These are immigrants that are coming from foreign countries. So the allegation was is that they were not properly informed about why they were receiving these medical procedures. And new this month, we learned that ICE already deported six former patients who complained about the doctor and at least seven others who made allegations against him as well have been told that they too could be removed from the country soon. And the complaint that was filed by the whistleblower also included allegations of unsanitary conditions, especially in the middle of a pandemic. What did those conditions look like? What were they outlining? It was not providing personal protective equipment, mask, not providing for social distancing. And visiting the detention center last week, I learned that Two of the employees, uh, including a top health official there, have died from COVID-19 over the last, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic. And what about detainees themselves? For Irwin, as of September 8th, it was 146 cases confirmed COVID-19. Jeremy, what more can you tell us about the doctor who was performing these hysterectomies and what his connection is to Irwin? The doctor, his name is Dr. Mahendra Amin, and there were panel of gynecologists or doctors that looked into the procedures he had performed, and they produced a report after these allegations surfaced saying that women from the detention center, these were detainees there, that were referred to gynecologists for problems that were really unrelated to their their reproductive health and were pressured to undergo these unnecessary surgeries. Amin, according to this report, did the procedures without informing the patients of risks, the benefits, or the alternatives before operating. And some of the women said they did not consent to the procedures, which in some cases left them unable to bear children. Some of the women refused surgery, but were later referred to psychiatric treatment, according to the documents they got. Through his attorney, Scott Grubman, Dr. Amin strenuously denies the allegations. And according to a defamation lawsuit Amin filed last week against MSNBC, The doctor says he performed only two hysterectomies on patients from the Irwin County Detention Center. The lawsuit says both were, quote, medically necessary, and in both instances, the patients were informed and consented to the procedures, unquote. Regarding the nine-member panel that examined Amin's practice at the detention center, Amin's attorney also says the investigators failed to review all relevant medical records before making their determination. So Don Wooten is the whistleblower who initially uh, alerted the public 
to the concerns there. Has she faced any fallout from speaking out? We understand from her representatives, this is at the Government Accountability Project, they're alleging that when she first raised her concerns internally, that her supervisors, the management there, LaSalle, chose to retaliate against her instead of addressing the abuses. Wooten says she was demoted from full-time to as-needed when she questioned the lack of COVID testing and PPE equipment. I became a whistleblower. Now I'm a target. But I'll take a target any day to do what's right and just then sit and be a part of what's inhumane. We reached out to the government to get their response. ICE does not comment on matters presented to the Office of the Inspector General. That said, in general, anonymous, unproven allegations made without any fact-checkable specifics should be treated with the appropriate skepticism they deserve. And she's still waiting for the results of the investigation as well, just like the officials down in Irwin County. We've asked LaSalle for a response from this accusation that there was some retaliation. We haven't heard back from them just yet. When we come back, how Irwin County's troubled detention center could be a cautionary tale for other communities looking to stake their economic futures on private jails. If you like hearing the news from around the state here on Georgia Today, you'll probably like hearing how Georgia's agriculture economy feeds the country and the world on a fork in the road. I'm David Zelski, and on the Fork in the Road podcast, we feature stories from Georgia's farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, chefs, and others who help provide Georgia-grown products to folks in the Peach State and beyond. Find it online at gpb.org slash podcast or download it on your favorite podcast platform. You're listening to Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. Joining me is Jeremy Redman, a reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Let's step back and talk a little bit about the facility itself and and the population uh, of detained immigrants. What actually brings most of them there? How do they end up there? It could be that you are an immigrant who has come here legally on a visa, you've overstayed your visa, and you've been apprehended, and you are in process of going through deportation proceedings. It could be that uh, you were arrested at the border, crossing the border illegally without proper documentation, and you were brought to this facility. And what happens is, is some of these people are still going through deportation proceedings. In other words, they're fighting their cases. They're allowed to appear in court. Some of them do it by video conferencing from the facility where a judge is sitting in another location and you're patched in by video. Others have already been ordered deported, and it's just really the logistics. They're awaiting a time to get a van to transport you to the airport at Columbus or in Atlanta to fly you back to your native country and to watch you go back through your port of entry. And how long might someone be there? I understand typically weeks to months. The the government is forbidden from holding people for an extended period of time, an inordinate period of time, under a case called Zavidas. So when we're talking about the population uh, of Irwin County Detention Center, there were also detainees from the marshal's office. So is there a mix then of people who are there just because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time versus people who may be accused of, of crimes? It's all the above. You've got U.S. Marshal Service detainees. These are people convicted or, you know, of federal offenses. You also have local offenders who are arrested in Irwin County for some local offense. And then you have the immigration detainees who are there on an immigration offense. And in fact, 
the ICE detainees, for example, were segregated by uniform, wearing different color uniforms based on their offense level. But they were housed in different wings of this detention center that has about 1,200 beds. It's just outside of downtown Osceola, which is a very small rural area. The, the detention center itself is kind of a, I believe it's a one-level building surrounded by a tall fence in ring with barbed wire. And it's, it's a kind of a big grassy, patchy area just outside of town. When you went down there last week, what brought you there? It's curious about the impact on that community. You know, we covered the whistleblower complaint when it came out a year ago and have reported with my colleagues at the paper, Alan Judd included, particularly on what you've been asking about, about the female detainees. And also just on the way the pandemic was, how they were responding to it in the jail. But I was curious about the economic impact too and how this county uh, is going to deal with the fallout from this. They've been lobbying, these are county officials down there lobbying uh, U.S. senators in Georgia to try to reverse this decision from DHS and preserve this contract with ICE so that ICE will continue sending detainees there. Meanwhile, they've been reaching out to other law enforcement agencies to see if they can find sources of other detainees to be sent to the jail. And if this thing closes down, again, as some fear, they've got to find a new place to hold their local offenders because this is the location where local people who are arrested on local offenses go. At the same time, it's going to have an impact on people who contract with the jail. I visited, you know, a tire and car maintenance place that services the transport vans, and they're doing about $60,000 worth of work on these vehicles with tires and oil changes over the course of the year. That's one position for this one company. But on top of that, you know, you have uh, vendors selling food to the jail, utilities. This is something that they're worried about with a domino effect what would happen to their third largest employer, which they, they identify as Irwin County Hospital, which I'm told, you know, has been treating detainees as well as staff there. What happens to the hospital if it loses that revenue? Think about it. This is a jail that just employs not just people from Osceola and Irwin County, but surrounding counties as well, including Ben Hill. I interviewed staff members who work in or who live in Fitzgerald in Ben Hill, but commute into Irwin. So it's going to have a regional impact as well. Have there been layoffs already? Not that I'm aware of, but what actions are they going to take? What happens when, you know, there's no more detainees coming in the next few weeks? So how hard is it, Jeremy, when we talk about privately run prisons, how much more difficult is it for you to find stuff out? Uh, Really difficult. It really comes from what we can hear from ICE, which doesn't provide a lot of information or the private company that runs them if they choose to speak to us and share information. But a lot of it we get from activists or advocates for the detainees, many of whom go visit them in the detention center. These are people who are hundreds or even thousands of miles away from their native country and are missing their family. And so to the extent that the activists can get in these detention centers for visiting hours, uh, we learn a lot from them, as well as humanitarian aid groups like El Refugio down in Lumpkin. It's difficult, but building sources over time, uh, we have a lot of people who want to share with us what they've learned about what's going on in these facilities. Often we learned of deaths in the detention centers, for example, from these activists first. And you can't just walk into one of these detention centers. You need to get permission from ICE. And there are all sorts of ground rules for visiting, photography, where you can go, where you can't go, who you can talk to. It takes extended periods of time to set these types of visits up for journalists. You said that ICE severed the contract with the jail. 
Is that was that a surprise to LaSalle, which operates the jail? Yeah, that's part of their argument. First of all, they deny the allegations and they argue why is ICE and DHS taking this action and stopping this contract when the results of the investigations have not been released, that the Office of the Inspector General from DHS and ICE have not put out any findings when they looked into these allegations. We're here a year later. So they see this as really grossly unfair. In fact, some of the nurses I interviewed there and staff uh, interviewed one nurse, I interviewed a couple, the caseworker, and then an officer there. They were surprised by the allegations. Their position was, you know, we take our jobs very seriously. Uh, We treat the detainees with dignity and respect and received compliments from them. They say that some of the positive things happening in the detention center have been overshadowed. One of the things they pointed to is they said, look, a lot of the detainees who come here are getting medical care that they never received in their native countries. And they cited pap smears, for example, or treatment for diabetes. I'm thinking back to 2011, actually, 10 years ago now, when HB 87 was passed, which which definitely restricted how employers could could use immigrants who were not necessarily documented. Matt Ramsey, a co-author, said at the time the bill would give the police the right to demand immigration documents from anybody detained for any reason. It would also, he said, punish those who hired or harbored undocumented Americans. Our goal is, said Representative Ramsey, to eliminate incentives for illegal aliens to cross into our state. And that seems to be like a county that would have definitely been impacted by that. House Bill 87, I covered it when it was passed in the state legislature, was really a major crackdown um, intended against illegal immigration. And some of the farming community, agriculture is Georgia's largest industry, uh, pushed back at that time. So this is wrongheaded. It's going to hurt our economy. I'm not aware to what extent it had an impact in Irwin County. And these, in fact, things are supposed to be separate, right? This is state legislation in a local jail, but holding federal detainees. But you know, it, it stands to reason that there could have been an impact. And I know there was impacts elsewhere in the state where agricultural workers, these are often many of them migrant Hispanic workers who are attracted to the jobs here in Georgia, um, went into hiding or left because of the fear surrounding House Bill 87. When DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced that his department was severing ICE's contract with Irwin County Detention Center, did he say why? He said, basically, DHS detention facilities and the treatment of individuals in those facilities will be held to our health and safety standards. In a memo, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas directed ICE to discontinue use of the facility, quote, as soon as possible. And he said, where we discover they fall short, we will continue to take action as we are doing today. That was the extent of the basis he gave for why this was happening. ICE and DHS have not publicly released any findings of their looking into these allegations. And that's, again, a source of real consternation in Irwin County. But largely, this is a rural area that where the the major crops are uh, cotton and peanuts. And you'll cross, you'll pass by cotton fields as you're heading to the detention center. This is an area that is really uh, struggling for jobs. The detention center itself is the largest private employer with about 200 jobs and a $10 million payroll. So if this were to close, as some fear, this would be a major blow to Irwin County. 
is it true to say that over the last few months that the facility has not been taking any new detainees, but in fact starting to send them to other facilities? It wasn't until this month that we learned that there was around 40 left, and then ICE transferred them to two other facilities. They sent them to Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, near the Alabama border, and some to Folkestone Ice Processing Center near the Georgia-Florida border. But it was down to 40 this month, and now all of them are gone. Here's the thing, is that this thing that's happening with Irwin is a cautionary tale for these other facilities, like Stewart and in Folkestone, that have their finances tied up with these facilities. You know, Stewart has had its own share of problems. Some detainees have died there from COVID-19, as many as four, I understand. Uh, there were others that died of illnesses there and several that have killed themselves in the detention center. So it's drawn the spotlight. Um, it's been under investigation before. That's really bittersweet for the activists who were behind the whistleblower complaint at Irwin that while they are glad to see ICE stop sending people there, they don't want to see them sent to Stewart uh, or else other detention centers in Georgia uh, that are holding ICE detainees. Where would they want them sent? Well, I think they don't want them detained at all. There is a philosophical argument from many of these activists that argue that if you're accused of an immigration offense, that you shouldn't be held in detention, that there are other ways to track you and make sure you show up for your court hearings. By and large, a lot of these offenses are civil offenses, right? And so there is this argument among the activists that, look, why are we spending this taxpayer expense putting them in these far-flung rural areas away from their families for extended periods of time, and some would argue endangering their lives amid the pandemic, holding them in close confines, when you could free them on bond and monitor them with electronic monitoring bracelets, for example. And there's some studies that show that the detainees uh, held in these type of bond arrangements do show up for their hearings. Is there any indication that the Biden administration is open to that possibility? I know that some of the Biden administration just opposed privately run immigration detention centers and have taken a much more liberal approach to immigration enforcement than Trump. The Biden administration has provided new guidance to agents with immigration and customs enforcement on who to prioritize when it comes to arrests and deportations. The Department of Homeland Security says the new rules will help ICE better allocate resources to address the most pressing national security, border security, and public safety threats. We see the result of it here with Irwin, where the DHS moved pretty quickly. You could draw a direct line from the whistleblower complaint to what's happening at Irwin, that all the detainees have been pulled out. The uh, people down in Osceola make the argument that while they do not agree with benefiting from the misfortune of others, these are people being locked up that are generating these jobs and the spending in that community. They argue, look, these people have broken the law and they've entered the country illegally or overstayed their visas. They need to be deported and they have to be housed until they're deported. And it has to happen somewhere. So why not here? So what are they imagining the future is now for the Irwin Detention Center? I don't know if they know the answer to that question. It was pretty grim from when I asked them the status of their plan B. So this is, this is a dire situation for the county. They're scrambling to figure out what to do next. My thanks to Jeremy Redmond. The Irwin County Jail has been central to that county's economy. With the facility's future in jeopardy, county officials there are scrambling to find new inmates for the facility and to look for other ways to fill the revenue gap. For more Georgia Today, go to gpb.org. I'm Steve Fennessy. Georgia Today is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. 
Subscribe to our show anywhere you get podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a review on Apple. Jess Madoar produced this episode. Our engineers are Jesse Neiswanger and Jahi Whitehead. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.